Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Politics and the Humanities. Uh, I'm Tom Merrill. I'm a professor at uh, American University, and I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh. Uh, hello, Sarah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, our guest today is Nick Bukola, who uh, is the author of this wonderful book, The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the Debate Over Race in America. Uh, Nick is the Elizabeth and Morris Glickman Chair of Political Science at Lidfield University. He's also the author of a book on Frederick Douglass. And, uh, he's done a, a, a reader on Frederick Douglass, and he's done an edited volume on Abraham Lincoln. I think I did. I get everything, Nick. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> uh, close enough. Um, Nick's uh, book has been a fantastic success, uh, which I guess we should say. So uh, it, this was uh, Whoopi Goldberg's one of her favorite things for 2019. Isn't that right, Nick? That is correct. Yeah. Um, so uh, poor Nick has come a long way down to have to talk to us. But Nick, I want you to know that we actually move copies. Um, it's a very high percentage of our listeners. Uh, <laughs> 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 so if you have four listeners, then and you have three copies. I love it. I love it. It's a high rate of return. I love it. Um, but uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to hear we're going to have talk, Nick talk about the Buckley Baldwin debate, which is the centerpiece of his book. And then we're, we've got some questions about James Baldwin, which I think is really the hero of this book. Isn't that, isn't that right, Nick? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's going to be the shape of our conversation. And, and maybe I'll just start by asking, Nick, do you want to just tell us um, about this famous debate that uh, Buckley and Baldwin had? Viewers can find this or listeners can find this on YouTube, at least in a truncated version. Yeah, that's but, right. Um, it's, uh, tell, us, tell us the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks, Sarah. I'm really, really excited to, to be here with you and have this conversation. Um, so February 18th, 1965, uh, James Baldwin, who at that time was second only to Martin Luther King as kind of a face of the, the civil rights revolution, uh, was invited to the Cambridge Union to debate William F. Buckley Jr., who at that time was kind of one of the, the faces of the conservative uh, counter-revolution, uh, founding father of the American conservative movement. Um, and Baldwin and Buckley were there at the Cambridge Union, the, the world's oldest debating society, a debating society that just marked its 150th anniversary um, to debate the motion, the American dream is the expense of the American Negro. And so the, that is kind of the, where the, the hook for the book, right, is, is that moment, this, these two um, intellectual giants squaring off on this international stage at the high tide of the civil rights movement. Um, and the book itself, though, is, is a longer book. I sort of start the reader out in that space in this packed Cambridge Union that night with all this excitement and all this energy. Um, and then I go back in time and this reader has to wait 250 pages before we're back uh, in the Cambridge Union for the, the climactic chapters in the story. Um, because what I once I started doing the research for the book, I realized pretty quickly that really the heart of the story is um, are the, the lives that these two men led, the sort of intellectual lives in particular, um, leading up to this moment. Who were they? What did they believe? Why did they believe what they believed? Um, and so I, what I try to do in the book is kind of weave their intellectual biographies. Uh, they, they're born about 15 months apart from each other. So I weave their intellectual biographies against the backdrop of the rise of these two movements that each of them you know, did so much to shape uh, respectively. So that's the kind of you know, big picture story of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, that, so I'm excited to get into some of the details with you. Nick, can I ask you how you got interested in writing a book like this? I mean, what led you to to the project? You know, it's it's one of these things that uh, you know, so many accidents, you know, in a row. Um, then the first was uh, actually I was hosting an event on my campus with um, Susan McWilliams Barnt from uh, Pomona College, and 
I didn't know uh, Sue very, very well. Um, you know, I know often in our profession, we, we sort of sometimes, you know, uh, speak, po speak poorly of our, our major uh, conferences like APSA, but APSA was actually a really a giving, um, a giving uh, moment for me in the sense that I, I sort of, I saw Sue uh, speak there uh, several years ago and I didn't know her, but I thought, oh, she's, you know, I really am interested in, in uh, having her on my campus. So I invited her to campus and she was working on Baldwin at the time. So I, I sort of like a good host did a little more reading of Baldwin and, um, and I'd read a little bit of Baldwin, but not nearly, nearly enough. And I was, of course, once I started reading him, I couldn't stop. Uh, and um, Sue kind of in invited me to write uh, an essay for um, a political companion, James Baldwin, she was editing at the time. And uh, that kind of got me started on, on sort of becoming obsessed with Baldwin. And then it, soon after that, I discovered the Baldwin-Buckley debate. And I was just, you know, transfixed. I mean, this sort of moment, you know, for all the reasons I just described, this, this moment of these two intellectual heavyweights um, squaring off uh, in, in this, this international um, setting. Uh, I just, there was something about it that just pulled me in and I couldn't get out. And so I started out by writing an essay about it. And then um, the book kind of evolved. I, I remember um, maybe a later apsa, I was, I was having a breakfast with a, with a colleague, uh, Chip Turner from the University of Washington. And he, I, I mentioned to him, I said, I'm thinking about a book about this. I think this could be a book. And he said, well, there's two new books that have come out about Malcolm X at Oxford in 1964. And so, you know, he, that kind of encouraged, you know, he encouraged me and said that you know, it seems like there's a, there could be a Baldwin at Cambridge book. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, it kind of evolved from there because I, I really want, as I just described, I really, re I realized once I got into the archives, the story of the debate itself and how it happened and why it happened and the energy of that night was, was really going to be central, but really this longer story was the one that that really you know kind of unraveled you know as I as I began to do the research and so yeah that's kind of the the story of how it all happened um, and of course as I started writing you know I really started researching in a serious way in like 2014 2015 but um, as I started writing in January 2016 and of course all these issues that are addressed in the book are they're always urgent um, but the kind of sense of the relevance and urgency of this debate and the, this kind of story of race and the American dream, um, you know, it, it felt in the broader culture, like it was, it was reaching a higher level of urgency. And so I, I was really fueled by the political energy around me um, to, to write the book and also trying to finish it before someone else wrote this book, because I knew it was a book that had to be written. Can I, can I ask a follow up on the personal side? Mm -hmm. um, so in the, um, I think it's the acknowledgements or something, you you talk about your own history, your own political history, mm -hmm. that uh, you I, I come from a conservative family or something. Mm -hmm. And you were, uh, the, the detail that stuck, stuck out to me is you were an intern at the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, and I, it, uh, you tell me if this is right, but it, it seems to me that there's a sense of betrayal in this book when you're writing about Buckley. Mm -hmm. Right, that you wanted him to be someone different than than he, at least in this episode, he turned out to be. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that is. Yeah, and I, I figured, uh, you know, in the acknowledgments, I would just I would just pull the skeletons out of my closet, you know, rather than let some you know some journalist expose expose me as a, a former heritage uh, heritage um, foundation intern. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so you know, I, my family is is um, you know they're they're fairly conservative, not you know super duper conservative, uh, and I should say you know never Trump conservatives, um, you know, at, at this point in their lives, but. But, um, but I, yeah, so I grew up in a, in a conservative family. Buckley was somebody kind of on my radar um, growing up, not in a, in a central way. We weren't gathered around the, 
you know, the, the TV watching firing line every week or anything. But but I was on my radar, uh, certainly as I got into my college years and was kind of like the, you know, typical college libertarian uh, for a while there. And as, as somebody who, you know, I admired, I thought was interesting, I was intrigued by. Um, and, you know, as I sort of, uh, you know, matured, uh, I guess, uh, intellectually, I began to um, question a lot of what I believed growing up and question a lot of, uh, you know, sort of things that I had just taken to be true in terms of my, you know, my political philosophy. And um, the experience at the Heritage Foundation was a really interesting one. Uh, and I, I think it was, um, it may have, you know, sort of helped me in my intellectual and sort of growing up from conservatism in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, to borrow a, a phrase from Buckley and, and turn it on its head, um, you know, Buckley famously spoke of up from up from liberalism. Um, yeah. So I, I think that Buckley was somebody. And I also I had this kind of general narrative about Buckley in my mind that was a narrative of redemption on race. That Buckley had said some really, uh, you know, racist things and written some racist things in the 50s and the 60s, but that he had, you know, kind of come to regret those things by the end of his life. And I you know, I kind of, that was the narrative I, I sort of believed about Buckley going into the research and also Buckley as editor of conservatism, as somebody who did have this kind of important role. And we still see headlines today about Buckley as this person who was one of his central contributions was to edit out people who were conspiracy theorists and so on and so forth. John Birch people. The John Birch people and all that. So I, I think that, yeah, looking, I want, I think once I got into the, you know, had this sort of basic idea for the book, um, I really what went into it wanting to see, and he gives us so much in terms of understanding how his mind is working because he writes so much publicly and he's writing so many letters that you really get a sense of, you know, you can peek into his mind almost every day as he's shaping this history. And so I really, um, yeah, there was a kind of sense of betrayal, I guess, on, on some level. And insofar as Buckley has this reputation as somebody who was attempting to fashion an intellectually serious and responsible conservative movement, um, there, there certainly are a lot of moments in the book when, you know, I think, uh, the, the research revealed him to be less intellectually serious than, than one might hope and certainly less than responsible. So, and, and we should distinguish between two things with, um, both of which I know you have opinions on, right. But one is the Buckley of the fifties and the sixties, right. Which is what the book's really about. And then this later question of whether, or to what extent, uh, he changes his mind, right? And so that the contemporary defenders of Buckley, who are you know many of whom still work in National Review, um, right? They they take an opposite view on the latter thing than you do. Mm -hmm. but, um, I think it just needs to be said. I mean, Buckley in the earlier period, um, he does some some things that by our standards are amazingly creepy, right? Uh, and I'm thinking here, especially of the the um, editorial "Why the South Must Prevail," or maybe, mm -hmm. I think that's the title. Mm -hmm. Um, can you tell, can you, I mean, just in the, because it's, I think it's important for people to, to remember what, what that position was. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so one of the things that, um, I try to do in the book is, is give a really deep, uh, slow motion, uh, you know, s you know, uh, explanation of how Buckley and his circle at National Review, um, dealt with questions of race and civil rights. I mean, it's, it's in the mo in the year and you know two years really that Buckley is sort of building the foundation for National Review and launching it. Um, it's 1954 and eventually in the launches in 19 November 1955. And so that's happening in the in the wake of the Brown v. Board uh, school desegregation decision, the sort of grassroots backlash against that decision with the rise of the white citizens councils and so on, the elite backlash against the decision, the Southern Manifesto eventually uh, in Congress. 
And then you also, um, you know, you have the lynching of Emmett Till, which gets international, you know, headlines. You have the arrest of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott, the rise of Martin Luther King. All that is happening right in these months and in, in when Buckley is, is starting National Review. And Buckley, you know, makes very clear from the beginning. So he was in this position as the editor, as the sole shareholder, um, uh, to decide how the magazine would come down on these questions of of race and civil rights. And he he says 10 years later, when uh, this guy Jeffrey Hart's writing a 10 year anniversary book about National Review, um, he asked Buckley, you know, what was your goal? What has been your goal on race and civil rights? And Buckley says, um, I wanted the magazine to be extremely articulate, always important to William F. Buckley, um, <laughs> non-racist, but not reflexively racially egalitarian. And so Buckley thinks what he thinks he's doing, right? And this is important, what understanding what people think they're doing. Um, he thinks he's fashioning an intellectually serious, non-racist uh, politics on, on race. And, he, and, and, he, and it's, but it's, it's a very, very fine line he's trying to walk. What it ends up resulting in is they are, they're against Brown v. Board, they're against any federal intervention uh, to um, you know, to try to you know, you know, take down the, the Jim Crow regime, including congressional action. It's not just a matter of the courts. They're critics of Martin Luther King at almost every turn. The one exception is they think economic boycott is a legitimate form of social protest. They're critics of the sit-in protesters, protesters, critics of the Freedom Riders against the Civil Rights Act of '64, against the Voting Rights Act of '65. And Buckley himself, as you said, Tom, in most infamously writes this um, this editorial, "Why the South." Must prevail in 1957, and that piece is, is written in the context of this, the debate of the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and it's in, in particular that piece is written to defend a, a uh, an unfriendly amendment uh, to the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which essentially was a jury nullification amendment. It basically said, you know, that uh, white juries in the South would be able to nullify the federal law, um, you know, at any at any point, and so. It was a very, you know, unconservative kind of position Buckley was taking. But he says in Why the South Must Prevail, um, white Southerners, it really should be called, or it is, you know, essentially it should be titled Why the White South Must Prevail. White Southerners, he says, are entitled, and not only do they have a right, but they have a duty to take whatever measures they believe are necessary to maintain their civilizational supremacy, right? Which I know will be important to our right. conversation later. And right. so he even kind of, he doesn't quite defend violence, extra legal violence, but he doesn't condemn it either um, in, in that piece. So it, it is, as you said, Tom, a very creepy piece um, that Buckley never repudiates. And this is the important thing for the, you know, just to your second point about distinguishing the later Buckley. Buckley is asked on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, everyone's favorite uh, <laughs> favorite show. No, read, no, no, no. We're the favorites. <laughs> oh, sorry. Terry Gross, you got to get out of the way. <laughs> She, yeah, she reads to him from, and this is late in his life, not quite in the you know last couple of years, but it's late in his life, reads to him from Why the South Must Prevail. And he says, everything that you just, everything you just said is correct. You know, and basically he has this, this way of defending the view that he took, which is even creepier because he says, well, was, isn't it called the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People? Isn't that implying that that they were not sufficiently advanced um, to be on a, a sort of terms of political equality? That's Buckley's defense into the '90s, you know, into the early 2000s. So that's I think important for folks to keep in mind. We don't have to focus on the later Buckley, but that's definitely, um, you know, that's a position that I don't think he ever fully repudiates. Yeah, no, but he, I mean, he says explicitly there and other places, right, that 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 um, black people in the in the South, but also elsewhere, are not as as culturally advanced, right? Mm -hmm. And that just has to be said, like that's, that's part of the Buckley, 
the the Buckley tra trajectory, right? Um, and so I, I just I don't want us to like somehow miss miss that. that yeah, no, that's a really, and I should just say really quickly is that, and I I think this is really important too, is that Buckley really, you know, I and I take him at his word. Buckley did not believe what he was saying and doing. Uh, fit within the category of racism. So for Buckley, it's a really necessary ingredient. Ingredient in what racism is is it's a it's a it's it's rooted in animus and it's also um, fixed, right? So racial hierarchy is is fixed. And Buckley, his position, his his version of white supremacy, even in that most infamous piece in, in Why the South Must Prevail, is that his his position is white supremacist, but it's temporary. And it is rooted, and it has this kind of instead of animus, is rooted in this kind of noblesse oblige. He believes that right. uh, white people as superiors, and he says this at the end of that piece. He, he calls on Southerners. He says, "Don't take advantage of all this power you have, white Southerners. You have an obligation to bring um, African Americans up to a level of cultural equality, which then can be a basis for political rights." So, it's it's a it's a nuanced position, and that's important for people to understand that that's how Buckley was rationalizing it in his mind. Yeah. Uh, well, so there could be a lot more to be said about that. So let's let's talk about the actual debate itself. Yeah. So um, can you tell us yeah. for the for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, but but should definitely go out and do that? Uh, what's the setup for the debate? How is this thing structured? You know, what are what is the situation that that Baldwin and Buckley are are walking into, and how does the voting work? The whole deal. Set yeah. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Well, yeah, so um, one of the really cool things about this book was because, you know, it was hosted, the debate was hosted in 1965 by undergraduates, you know, 50 years on as I'm doing the research, many of those undergraduates are, you know, still around, they're still now in their 70s, and I was able to interview uh, the, 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 you know, the sort of the students who planned the debate, hosted the debate. So that backstory of how the debate even happened had, had not been written about, to my knowledge. Um, everyone knew the debate happened. The, the BBC recording was on YouTube, but it was sort of murky as to what, how they ended up there that night. So that, um, without getting into, you know, those details, which we can talk about later if you, if you want, um, essentially, you know, they are invited by this guy, Peter Fullerton. It's, it sort of happens as a result of Baldwin's publicist. Uh, wanting to promote his third um, novel, the paperback release of Another Country was uh, happening in the UK uh, in early 1965, and so they they at, they call the Cambridge Union and say, "Hey, will you host James Baldwin for a, for for an author event?" And um, this you know this undergraduate Peter Fullerton said, you know, and I interviewed him, says I was feeling very brave, and I said, "No, we will not uh, host you know James Baldwin for an author event. This is a debating society. We will host him for a debate, um, but not for just a, an author event." And so. That was kind of the original, um, and then it was the, sort of this behind the scenes negotiation uh, in many ways between Baldwin's um, sort of representatives and the Cambridge Union. In part, Baldwin's representatives didn't want him to do this debate for a lot of reasons, especially because they knew Buckley would be involved. Um, but they, so they, they arranged for the debate to be structured in a way, I think this is probably, and Peter doesn't remember all the details of how this came to be, but essentially what they did is they had this motion that uh, Peter proposed to Baldwin and Buckley, the American dream is the expense of the American Negro. And they ended up having essentially set pieces. So it's not a debate when folks who haven't watched it yet or, or haven't listened to it, um, when they watch it, they're not going to get to see Baldwin and Buckley arguing with each other in that, in that form of debate. It's rather, um, there's one student speaker on each side of the motion. So one on the Baldwin team, one on the Buckley team. Uh, and then Baldwin speaks. He delivers a speech of about 24 minutes. And then Buckley speaks. So he delivers a speech of about 
29 minutes. And so the BBC recording um, has the entirety of Baldwin's speech. Buckley's speech is edited down a bit. Uh, but the entire uh, audio recording is on the audio, audio book for The Fires Upon Us, and we have the full transcript in the book as well. Um, so you get to hear all of Buckley's uh, Buckley's speech um, if you check out those sources. All but, those words and nobody knows what they mean. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So all those words and no one, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a great, it's great for vocab for preparation. If you're doing some sort of standardized test, listen to Buckley for a little while. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's how the debate was structured. And then they... The way the students, so then, and then one thing that's not captured by the recording, either the audio or the um, the BBC recording, is that the after Ball, after Buckley sits down, there were then these really short two-minute speeches that were given by other students, um, and I think it was it was three on each side, uh, and I was able to interview a bunch of those students, but their speeches seemed to be kind of lost to history, um, and uh, and then the, and then the students voted. So you know, it started at like eight forty-five p.m. So about eleven p.m. or so. Um, the way the students voted was you would you would walk out one door or the other depending on which side you were voting for. And so the line for, for spoiler alert, the line for the Baldwin side was much longer. Um, the final vote was five hundred and forty-four for Baldwin's side and one hundred and sixty-four uh, for Buckley's side. And so um, that's the kind of detail of, of what happened. So Nick, in the book, right, so Fullerton then announces who wins. Do the students go out and then they come back in for the announcement? Or how does, I couldn't figure out where the students had gone and where they heard the, the news. Yeah, so so the, the way, I think the way the BBC edited that was, um, you, what must have happened is they, you know, they sort of cut, they, start, they, they so Buckley gives his speech, they cut there. Um, the, those other little student speeches happened then the students voted. And then when they actually show Fullerton back in the president's chair and he's announcing the vote, you'll notice the chamber is, is pretty empty. I mean, you can see Baldwin and Buckley, uh, you know, down at the, in the, you know, in the editing or in the uh, debating area uh, and, and see a few other people around. But yeah, I think it was sort of one of those things where uh, like the, basically the word just spread, right? So in the union itself, it's, it's the debating chamber is just one it's the major, you know, part of the the union premises, but there's also a bar. So a lot of students are hanging out in the bar. There's a library upstairs. There's all these other rooms, and then there's just kind of that that nice courtyard there. I don't know how, you know, probably was pretty cold outside, but people just kind of find out, you know, who won yeah. through um, through you know the the buzz, I, I guess. Um, and they probably sensed as they're looking at the lines, you know, kind of who was yeah. going to win. Uh, and then of course all the you know the, the media coverage after the event, they they certainly found out who won uh, very soon after. So, so Nick, I think um, we want to ask you some questions about Baldwin, but but maybe I, to frame the question in terms of the the Baldwin Buckley debate. Um, so, so Baldwin, right before the debate, has uh, I think in the, in the right before the debate has published uh, the fire next time. How close yeah. is that in time? It's it's within a year or something, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So the fire next time, the the sort of bulk of the fire next time is this long essay uh, down at the cross, uh, which is originally published in the New Yorker magazine in November 1962. And then the book, the fire next time, which is that long essay, plus this short uh, famous letter to his nephew um, that was published originally in the progressive magazine. Uh, the book itself, that little book of those two things comes out in ja late January 1963. So I want to frame a question, and and I this is uh, I feel a little bit um, unseemly doing this, framing a question that I think is implicit in Buckley's speech mm -hmm. that I think is is at work for him. But given every other creepy thing that he said, I feel I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying this. Um, but it seems to me that part of his question is really 
are you James Baldwin asking us to reject um, a Western civilization and B Christianity? And so, so Buckley is a lifelong Catholic, right? And, and that the thing that uh, he's got, there's Baldwin has a line about um, Jesus, the sun baked um, and Buckley says fanatic, but that's not the word that Baldwin actually uses uh, because, but in, in the fire next time, Baldwin is quite critical of, um, of Christianity and says, you know, uh, St. Paul was a fanatic, and one can see the um, the results in uh, the concentration camps, mm. right? And so there is a feeling, I think, uh, and, and especially at the end of Buckley's speech, right, when he's like, we will defend the faith of our fathers, mm-hmm. that, um, that he feels um, personally, you know, his identity has been touched, mm-hmm. shall we say. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to have lots of echoes with with the race conversation today. So I wonder if you, you could... Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, great question, Tom. Um, yeah, and this is this is something that you know one of the things I do in the book, although it's you know primarily a kind of narrative-driven you know kind of storytelling approach, um, I do you know kind of a deep dive into the fire next time, mostly because it's it's the book that kind of casts the the sort of longest shadow over the debate. It's the book that sort of Buckley. It's unclear to me still whether Buckley actually read it, but he certainly read. Uh, Gary Will's review of it that for National Review, and he, um, he he seems to have gotten at least some of the big ideas, the most controversial ideas, and and one of them, as you say, um, is that you know he reads the book as an attack on Western civilization, as an attack on Christianity. Uh, Buckley writes a, an editorial at one of his syndicated columns um, after the book comes out, uh, and he titles it. This is his review of Baldwin is called. A call to lynch the white god. Uh, Buckley was his provocative titles, um, and so yeah, you know, Buckley says that there's a there's two lines that seem to rankle him more than any other. That sort of, as you point out, are kind of symbols for everything else, or how he's interpreting Baldwin. Um, one is that line about about Jesus, right? Um, the the uh, Baldwin refers to uh, Jesus as uh, that disreputable sun baked Hebrew who gave uh, gave the church his name. Um, and then, of course, the stuff on St. Paul. And then the other line that Buckley quotes directly during uh, the Cambridge speech is um, the only thing that white men have that black men should want is power. Right. And that those two things are the things that just drive Buckley um, up the wall. And so I think that part of what is going on in, in the far next time, and this is we could talk about this for you know the rest of the day. Um, so I'll keep it relatively brief. Um, is it, you know, Baldwin? is uh, he has this extraordinarily complicated, um, I think, you know, relationship with with faith, with religious faith um, and with the West. And I know we'll talk about that more as we, with the Western tradition kind of writ large. But I think one of the things you see going on, because there's, there's language in the fire next time that is, um, you know, certainly, un- you know, understandably uh, um, sort of, you know, takes readers aback, especially readers who identify themselves as, as Christian. Um, but but Baldwin is engaging in, I think, a kind of critical dialogue that was central to his life. Baldwin grew up in a very religious household. He was himself a young minister from the age of 14 to 17. He has these moments when he's never, you know, there's moments when, you know, he is, somebody can read what he says or hear what he says and say, well, he's clearly now an atheist or a religious skeptic. But he'll also, you know, he always was surprising people too. I mean, soon after the debate, he's asked, you know, what he, how he identifies religiously. And he says, I'm an unorthodox Christian, right? I mean, he's kind of playing around there. Um, and then he says, you know, later on, um, 
when he's asked about, you know, about his, his, his relationship with Christ, um, you know, he says, well, I think of Christ as the most betrayed figure in all of human history, right? So there's a kind of way in which Baldwin has a kind of sense of what a true Christianity is, and he sees it embodied in many of the civil rights activists around him who are, who are deeply, uh, you know, committed to their, you know, religious faith, and he sees it in people like Martin Luther King as well. Um, but, and so what Baldwin's really indicting in, in my, on my reading of The Fire Next Time is he's indicting not Christ, not Christianity as an idea of, of what, what could be, right, as a, as a true faith, but rather he's indicting a kind of practice. He's indicting a sort of a way that people have imagined uh, Christianity to be, imagined their faith to be, that has led them to treat others inhumanely. So there's a line, it, it, you know, one of the sort of key transition points in The Fire Next Time when he he's talking about God, you know, and it, and it's a it's a line that definitely uh, gets people's attention, right? When he says that basically, if God can't make us more free, um, I'll just read it directly because Baldwin will put it more beautifully than I than I can. Um, he says, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it is time we got rid of Him, right? Um, and Nick, this is at the end of the, there are three sections. This is the end of the first section, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I, so I, I think Baldwin, I mean, one thing I, I, I say I, I think is really important is that, um, you know, uh, Cornell West has this great, you know, sort of uh, description of Baldwin as the black American Socrates, right? And I think there's something about Baldwin that, you know, if we try to, you know, sort of pin him down and say, this is what he believed about Christianity, then he's going to pivot and he's going to ask us a new question. So, um, so that's those are kind of some you know kind of relatively amorphous um, reflections on Baldwin and Christianity. I mean, the, one of the big points I try to make in the book is it's certainly to me one of the things I feel very confident in saying is that Buckley's uh, Buckley sets up a straw man of Baldwin's position for sure and dismisses it far too quickly. And I think even Gary Wills, who has a much more nuanced take on Baldwin, I don't really I think Wills somewhat surprisingly, given I think the depth of Wills' thinking. Um, he kind of reads Baldwin in this way as well, um, and has a really, I think, important critique uh, of a position that I think Baldwin doesn't take, um, but that I think is relevant to our this overall discussion of Baldwin and, and the Western tradition. Sure. So I have a lot to say. I mean, so one thing is that I think Buckley. Um, I mean, it, it seems like he maybe uh, this would be a charitable reading that he gets he gets scared and he's attacking the thing that he's scared by. Mm -hmm. Um, perhaps, uh, which is, may not be the same thing as what Baldwin is, but it also seems to me that that um, Buckley couldn't have said these things to uh, Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther King is much more like, you know, the Declaration gave us a promissory note, and so the standard is clearly there. We're just asking America to live up to the standard, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in in Fire Next Time, it it things seem like they're like, what's the what's the theological foundation here is is less clear. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I want to say something about fire next time and ask you if this, this is a correct understanding of how the text works. And then I want to ask, I want to give you a quote and ask you to tell me what it means. Okay. Um, but so that the, um, and I, I wonder if Buckley read past the first section of this book, right? Because like the first section is, is the most stridently anti at least established Christianity for a very long time. Right. Mm -hmm. That Christianity has a kind of fanaticism in it. And that um, Christians um, think that God is white, I think, is one of the things that that's said. And, and right, probably that was the case for many people, right? I mean, that, that this 
that also has to be said. But the, but the structure of the essay, and, and I've, I've been reading um, Notes of a Native Son with, with my students, and, it, and there's a similar structure with Harry Peter Stowe and Richard Wright mm-hmm. and Uncle Tom and Bigger Thomas in the sense that first you get the white is right position, mm-hmm. and then you get the inversion in this long middle section with Elijah Muhammad of The Fire Next Time, where everything's just been flipped. And so what was on the bottom is now on the top. Black is right. White people are devils. Mm-hmm. And, and Baldwin clearly rejects that, right? That that's, um, and so the way that the, the essay unfolds is more complicated than just simply reading that first section all by itself. And then you get this final third section in which whatever Baldwin's own answer to the question of who should I be is, at least in that essay, is to be found. Does that, does that sound like a fair description of the essay to you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those, I, I mean, I think the first time I read the essay, uh, I, I knew I was reading something profound, but I didn't quite understand, like, you know, because he's going, you know, he starts us out, right, in Harlem, he's a teenager, he's trying to give us a sense of what the world looked like through his eyes. And then he's, you know, and you, and you really feel, you know, as, as a reader, like you're there with him and trying to get it, getting a sense of what that landscape looked like and the kind of forces of domination that he's confronting. And then he like will pan back, you know, to these big questions, big uh, statements about the moral history of the West and Christianity. Um, And then he'll take you, and then, you know, as you said, at the beginning of part two, all of a sudden you go from Harlem in the late thirties, early forties to the doorstep of Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the nation of Islam in 1961. And, and you're like, what just, what just happened? There's a little section break there. Um, yeah, right. There's probably a little ad in the New Yorker separating a cartoon or something. Uh, and then, and then, but then it becomes clear, right? As you just point out, Tom, is that he's doing this really interesting inversion thing that, you know, I think part of the kind of literary history of this piece helps explain a little bit of what was going on with that. But he, he had been thinking about the nation of Islam while he was thinking about these broader questions, these autobiographical questions, these questions about, you know, the moral history of the West. And so he, you know, he came up with, and some of the letters he wrote to his agent during this period kind of help us see this, that he, he figured out that there was a way in terms of the literary maneuvering that he could utilize this, these reflections he had been having about the, about the nation of Islam um, to really help tie together what he was trying to do in the, these, uh, these, other, these other parts of, these other regions of his mind, to use his language. Um, and so, I, I mean, that to me, and so a part of what he's up to there, right, he knows predominantly, he has this predominantly white audience. Um, I mean, right around this time, there's this interesting passage in uh, Time Magazine. He's on the cover of Time Magazine later in 63 after the fire next time comes out. And um, and the reporter says, you know, most, you know, black folks in, in Harlem and Birmingham have no, still have no idea who James Baldwin is. His audience is primarily this kind of, um, you know, he's sort of become this literary celebrity uh, and that he's read mostly by, you know, white liberals. Um, and that's, that was, Baldwin was, con- I mean, he was conscious of that. And I think it, it sort of that plays out in various ways over the course of his career. But but I think part part of what he's doing there, I think, is that he's trying to use the nation of Islam, which he knows will is, is strikes fear into the heart of his white reader, um, and seems extraordinarily bizarre and odd in in terms of its theology and its politics and so on. Um, and he's trying to sort of do this sort of slow motion thinking with the reader about the nation of Islam. And then revealing in the process of you know a lot of these these things that he said about the certain conceptions of Christianity, certain conceptions of whiteness uh, that he's described in the first part, and then he'll come back to in the third part. 
Um, he, you know, he's using the Nation of Islam as a kind of vehicle to sort of say, look, you're seeing how absurd this sounds to you based on your experiences, based on everything you've ever been taught. Well, I want you to try to utilize this lens now to look back at yourself. And so um, I think it's a, I mean, I, to me, that is extraordinarily powerful. And it, it led the, the, this text to be misread. I think a lot of people were, some people thought, is James Baldwin, uh, you know, too sympathetic to the Nation of Islam? Because part of what he wanted to do, though, is to understand. He, he said, look, the Nation of Islam, as you said, Tom, I think it's clear to any careful reader he rejects the the message of Elijah Muhammad. He's also he's also gay. I'm always so, sort of wondering like how like they're trying to convert him, and he's like you know looking at all the wives and the children, and you know it's like how is this conversation going to go? Like how long can the can he keep this up? You know. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's an extraordinary and he I mean Baldwin you know in terms of his sexuality I mean there's sometimes where you know he's explicit and and you know of course in Giovanni's room and other country other other in some of his essays. Um, where he writes about, you know, you know, his sexuality or sexuality generally and 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 is addressing some of these things in the the fire next time, I mean, that moment, right? when he there's some ways in which I think there's a kind of subtext, right? You walk in to the mansion of Elijah Muhammad, and he says, you know, he felt self-conscious about the cigarettes in his pocket, right? I mean, so there's something about and you know, and he said like there's all my vices, right? and and the fact that he's leaving, from you know that he's hearing Elijah Muhammad refer to white devils throughout the evening, and then Mike, Elijah Muhammad says, "Hey, we'll give you a ride wherever you're going next." And you know, and you know, Baldwin's thinking, "I'm going to hang out with some white devils in another part of town," you know. Um, and so, yeah, and, 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 so, and Baldwin's yeah. sexuality is there too, for sure. Um, so yeah, so that there's a kind of way in which, but Baldwin does want to say, and he says this. I think this is where the kind of misreading of Baldwin is sympathetic. I mean, he's sympathetic in a sense to the Nation of Islam insofar as he sees, uh, especially Malcolm X and uh, to some extent, you know, the, the nation as a whole, um, he sees a kind of, um, you know, an articulation of black rage and, uh, you know, that, that is that Baldwin sees as, as entirely justified, right? And this is why when he says the nation of Islam has all of the facts on its side, he says things like that and it gets him in some trouble. Um, he's talking about their diagnosis of a problem of the kind of the impact of white supremacy has had on um, you know in terms of demoralizing folks and and the, the the credit he gives to Elijah Muhammad as he said he's done what generations of you know welfare workers and so on have been unable to do he's given a lot of people a sense of self respect uh, and and dignity that they didn't have before and Baldwin you know but Baldwin is careful to say that you know that's important and I want to acknowledge that and that's significant. But I also want to say that the recipe, the sort of the foundation of what Elijah Muhammad has given people, um, is it is a false. You know, there's it's a false foundation, and it's going to fall apart because it's based on a lie. And so that I think it's a profound thing he's doing there. It's nuanced, and he's cutting in both directions. But I think that's central to what he's up to. So Nick, my students are reading a letter from a region in my mind, my graduate students, and they've really puzzled over the part of the, the middle section of the essay where Baldwin says that he and Elijah Muhammad would either be strangers to one another or enemies. And this is what he's getting at, right? The, the stranger or the enemy, this is the, the sort of double lens Baldwin's trying to use to look at the nation of Islam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's a really powerful moment. I mean, what a moment! Just you know, standing there on the stoop, you know, with Elijah and um, and kind of feeling like you know, I mean, he has a couple lines in there where he says, you know, I I think to myself that maybe, you know, this is what my father and I would have been like if we were friends, you know. Um, 
mean, he kind of feels, and he fe he sort of feel, he's like, feel Elijah's pain. I can see his pain, the pain in his face. Um, and so that, yeah, there are these moments of really, you know, significant connection, but then, yeah, as, as, as you point out, Sarah, that, that moment at the end where he recognizes, you know, he says, because of what I take, because of what he takes his responsibility to be and what I take to be mine, um, we, we cannot, you know, be friends and may possibly be, be enemies. Um, and Earth yeah, we have the stranger, the idea of a stranger as well. Um, yeah, and I think that that, you know, that in that moment, especially, like you think about when Baldwin is writing that, um, he's he's in, you know, I think at maybe his his hope isn't at its highest point, but it's it's ascending, right? There's reasons to be hopeful. Baldwin really sees something changing before his eyes. In many ways, I mean, we might talk about this later. The, the sort of ways in which there's been a sense of the, the the protests this last summer of like feeling like, you know, I this feels different. It feels like something's changing um, in terms of the consciousness uh, of the of the culture. Baldwin was sensing that, right? He saw in the the revolutionaries, the student revolutionaries in the South, he saw something different. And what and one of the reasons, and he puts it in a global context, right? He sees that one of the reasons that he thinks um, this freedom movement is different is because of freedom movements happening around the world. There's a kind of way in which decolonization um, kind of provides, uh, you know, you know, Americans with, uh, you know, black Americans with sort of a, an imaginary, sort of a new imaginary, to put it uh, in, in, you know, sort of, um, you know, a, a fancy, you know, sort of academic term. So, yeah, so I think that's that's central to what he, so he senses things are changing. And then here's Elijah Muhammad, who, you know, is he thinks is right in so many ways about his diagnosis. But as Baldwin says in the sort of beginning of part three, the third kind of movement of the the symphony that is Letter from a Region of My Mind, um, he he says, you know, I want my people to be free, but I want them to be free with dignity, right? And he says that, you know, that's where he says, you know, call, calls out the nation directly and says that um, what Elijah is asking people to do is to root their sense of identity, their sense of worth in, you know, in a lie of a kind of racial supremacy, right? And so Baldwin says, that's always going to be a recipe for disaster. And so I cannot, that's why I have to be fundamentally, I'm a strange, you know, Elijah and I are strangers uh, to, to one another and we, we, we may have to be enemies. So yeah, I think that's part of what's going on there. And it's definitely, um, yeah, there's a lot more to say about that, right? Because Malcolm mm -hmm. is this whole other, Malcolm and Baldwin is this whole, that's a whole nother kind of chapter in that story that's, that's even more complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot here. So, so Nick, maybe if I can just reflect back what I hear you're saying, hear you saying that that um, at least in the first two parts of the fire next time, that what we're getting, if we, if we if we were seeing this as Martians, we put it, we could put it next to great works of political theory that it's really about self knowledge. That that mm -hmm. the Elijah Muhammad section is in a way, it's like this is how you look to somebody from you white supremacists. This is how you look to somebody from completely a, a different world and you, you don't recognize yourself in it, but that's maybe because you're, you're blind to yourself in certain fundamental ways. Mm -hmm. um, that's what, that's at least what I hear you say. So I think um, I, I, I want to talk more about what um, sort of what Baldwin's alternative is mm -hmm. right? both in the third section, but I also think that Sarah has some, some things that she wants to ask you about the uh, reading, the Western tradition, whatever the Western tradition is. Mm -hmm. um, but let me throw out a, a sentence from the end of, um, of Fire Next Time and, and hear what, what you think it means. Um, this, it, and I didn't prepare you for this, so you're just, so just the- That's all right, that's all right. Um, we'll people who cannot suffer, can never grow up, can never discover who they are. 
what does that mean? How does that fit into Baldwin's thought? Yeah. Um, I mean, and this is central, this is central, right? This is part of Baldwin's idea, you know, and another line around that, where that line is, is Baldwin talking about the need to become a kind of blues people, right? The, the need for white, white Americans, people who imagine themselves to be white to become black is, is a, a phrase that Baldwin, um, Baldwin uses uh, in the third, the third part of the fire next time. Um, and I think part of what Baldwin is is up to there and sort of asking us to come to terms with our suffering is is I think something that runs through you know his thought you know from the beginning to the end and that is that uh, and it goes to this point you're making about self knowledge Baldwin he thinks that this the the central problem the central human conundrum is that we construct identities uh, we're constantly constructing and reconstructing identities for ourselves uh, in order to, to feel safe, right? That we're fundamentally scared. Uh, and what we're most scared of, right, is we have this fear of death, right? There's this kind of, there are moments when I, in my margins for the book, I have Hobbes, you know, is, is one of the people I, I that always comes to mind when I, Baldwin describing, you know, um, Harlem in the, the early, some of the things he says remind me of Hobbes describing the state of nature. Um, but, you know, so Baldwin is talking about the ways in which we construct identity in order to, uh, in order to make ourselves feel safe. And that we're fundamentally this fear of of death um, is is kind of I think at the core of that. And so Baldwin, you know, when he's talking about, he has these sort of really um, stinging indictments of things like you know white musicians, right? <laughs> uh, and and sort of um, these these sort of comments that you know you know sometimes I think he's a little bit hyperbolic about you know how white people sing. Period. Uh, and and then but he but he really is trying to draw this contrast right between this kind of you know, this sort of poppy music where it's everything is good. We're all, you know, everyone, you know, um, we're, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, birds and, and flowers and, and romance or something. And then the blues, right, where Baldwin thinks what he sees in the blues uh, and what he hears in the blues uh, and what I think he's trying to capture in a literary sense as a kind of blues writer um, is is a, a sort of acceptance of life as it is, acceptance of suffering, acceptance of the reality of death, um, acceptance of all the ways in which we are fundamentally broken, and that 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 sort of uh, that quest for some identity that makes us feel safe is is always going to be there, but while simultaneously sort of finding a way to, as he says uh, earlier in the essay. Um, to to accept that and find joy and find love and find uh, and and try to you know sort of fight for justice and so on um, that that is something Baldwin I mean fundamentally for Baldwin that is what he wants that's what he's calling on us to do is to come to terms with all of that right to sort of um, not just try to sort of keep ourselves protected from the things that make us uncomfortable but rather to confront them. Um, in a way that makes our suffering noble, right? We are going to suffer one way or the other. And this is what he shows through so many of his characters in fiction. These characters who are suffering, but their suffering is not noble, right? They're suffering through, they're pretending to be something they're not so that they can feel safe, but ultimately they don't feel safe and their souls are being torn apart. So Baldwin says, look, you're going to suffer. So why not suffer in an honest way? Why not suffer in a way that actually is more authentically human? Um, and in so doing, you might be able to help others, you know, um, survive their suffering. And so I think that's part of what he's up to there. I mean, there's still some lines in the last, you know, the last third of, of, 
um, the essay that I, I still am trying to wrap my mind around what he could have meant and how it fits with other things he said. And also accepting the fact that it might not be everything might not fit together perfectly. Uh, you know, I might not might be asking for something from him that he's not uh, trying to give. Um, and so uh, that's that those are some uh, a few thoughts about about that. But I think that's a crucial thing for Baldwin coming to terms with our histories as individuals, uh, as collectives. Um, has to do, you know, part of what he's, when he calls on us to come to terms with history, it's coming to terms with our suffering, with our trauma, um, and then trying to figure out how we can use that suffering and that trauma and that history to build something better. Yeah. Great. So I think the idea of a usable past is totally germane to the questions I want to ask about Baldwin and the canon. So Tom, is it all right if I, if I take us Please. there next? So when I was, I was reading the book, uh, I was struck by the way Buckley understands Baldwin's position on, let's call it Western civilization, but like Western culture, literary texts. Um, and, and Buckley says, in his view, Baldwin's advocating to jettison the entire, the entire deal. Tear down the statues. And, and so this, right, and so we're still having the debate that at least Buckley imagines himself to be having with Baldwin. But at the same time, at least the way I read Baldwin, I don't know that Baldwin necessarily sees it in the way that, that Buckley lays it out. And so, Nick, can you first talk us through how how Buckley understands Baldwin? And then I'd like to get into some passages from Baldwin about the Western tradition and get Baldwin's disposition. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Um, yeah, so Buckley, Buckley, you know, and it's just sort of to, to set this up. I mean, it's important. My my sort of reading of Buckley uh, is, you know, this goes back. You know, I'm going to talk uh, with um, at, zoom into Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin tomorrow and talk about Buckley and Baldwin and their fathers, right? So I think there's a lot of daddy issues here. Um, but but so but but just to say briefly, I mean Buckley. Um, you know, he has these parents who have imposed this very strong worldview. And essentially, I read Buckley as, you know, much of what he is doing with his life um, is trying to make his parents proud, like the rest of us, right? And and what he really, what what he's, you know, more, more specifically, um, he sees his role, his vocation um, as defending the worldview that his parents taught him, right? And, and that worldview um, is, you know, he was taught what made their affluence possible and what made American prosperity and, uh, you know, and dominance possible. And so, so when Buckley, so when Buckley thinks about that as a general idea, he is thinking about, of this thing, right? Western civilization with, you know, particular ideas within what he understands to be Western civilization as being especially important. And, you know, the details of, of those ideas, you know, are maybe less relevant to, to your, your question um, than just the general ideas that he sees himself as a guardian of this thing that he identifies as Western civilization. And so from a very early age, that's what he, you know, so he gives this, you know, graduation speech at Yale, right? And he says, like, our obligation as elites from, you know, leaving from this institution is to guard uh, Western civilization, this oasis of freedom and prosperity our job, yes, there are people who are going to point out all the problems with it. They're going to say that there could be this better way, but they're wrong. We have to protect, you know, the sort of known goods uh, against those who are kind of arguing for an unknown better. And so that's Buckley. And so Buckley really throughout his life from the earliest days 
He's most comfortable, though, not defending particular values within Western civilization, but rather serving as the kind of person who's there to take on anyone who's perceived as a threat to those values. Um, and so that's as a debater in college um, on firing line and his, in his writing, Buckley is that's the role he plays. So anyone he sees a, emerge on the scene who he perceives as a threat to those that idea of Western civilization, he's you know knives are out. He's coming for him. And Baldwin, from a very you know from very early on, when Baldwin's sort of rising on the scene, uh, Buckley identifies him as as a special threat. Right, he's an eloquent menace, is what Buckley calls him. He's somebody who's extraordinarily. Buckley acknowledges Baldwin is extraordinarily gifted as a writer. Um, and he's, you know, that makes him even more dangerous, right? Because he's so, he is, Buckley sees in him a kind of literary merit that, you know, Buckley sees might seduce the elites to accept him into the establishment. And so, yeah, I mean, Buckley basically argues that, um, and this is, this goes back, you know, to some of his earliest writings on Baldwin. Um, he reads Baldwin as somebody who is there to, you know, with, intentions no less than overthrowing Western civilization. He wants to, he re, his rejection of Western civilization is total, his hatred of Christianity. Um, you know, he uses this line that's not actually captured in the BBC recording that uh, it is, you know, that is there in the audio recording where, you know, Buckley says, you know, Baldwin is calling on us, all of you students to go raid the libraries around here and burn the Plato and the Aristotle and the Bibles and, uh, and so on and so forth. So for Buckley, he sees Baldwin is really calling, you know, he says his rejection of our civilization is total. He wants to overthrow it completely and replace it with what? Well, Buckley's not entirely sure. He has some, you know, he'll sometimes suggest Baldwin is, is a Marxist. He'll suggest, uh, you, know, um, you know, these sorts of things. But he, he does see Baldwin as, as hell-bent on overthrowing um, everything, the faith of our fathers, uh, as, as uh, you, you referred to earlier. So that's kind of his general position. And then we can, yeah, we can work out the specifics. And so, you know, for, so for Buckley at Cambridge, he, at the end of the speech, he, he says to the students, he invokes Churchill and says, if this is in fact what, what Baldwin proposes to do, we will fight it on the beaches and so on and so forth, just like the Nazis. And, and, and Buckley ends, help me, Nick, if I get this wrong, right? He says they would do this for the sake of, of the Western tradition, but also for the sake of the American Negro. Um, I, right. I'm not getting it the quote quite right, but what does what does Buckley mean by that? Yeah, so and this is something Buckley. Um, this was a common Buckley technique. So throughout the the Civil Rights Revolution, so when, even when he's not writing about Baldwin, um, he'll often make this analogy, uh, which is an unfortunate one um, in many ways, where he'll compare civil rights protesters in his analogy to Nazis. Um, and he, or, you know, um, you know, so he does this a number of times with like the freedom riders and the sit-in protesters. He can, he says, well, think about when, you know, the American Nazi party does X, Y, or Z, and we react in this way. Why are we reacting? They're, they're disturbing the peace in one setting. These civil rights protesters are disturbing the peace in another. So this was not a one-off for Buckley to make this sort of analogy. Um, but yeah, part of what he's saying there, right, is that, uh, you know, he, you know, as, as you said, Sarah, he's saying, you know, look, we, I, he's, he's here to overthrow Western civilization. I'm here to defend Western civilization. And I will tell you that if it comes to it, right, I will go beyond defending Western civilization and, you know, wearing my, you know, my tuxedo in the Cambridge Union. And I will, I will take up arms. If there's a war, I am going to fight for Western civilization. I mean, it's kind of this, you know, sort of implicit, this kind of race war that he's imagining. Mm -hmm. 
at the end of the speech, and, and again, uses that uh, analogy, as you point out, of, of sort of you know, quoting Churchill um, and, uh, and saying essentially that Churchill, right, and, and he's saying this to the students, you know, uh, as well, like Churchill was not just defending, you know, Britain, right? He was defending certain values that later generations of Germans would appreciate Churchill for what he did, because now they, you know, down the road, they're able to live free because Churchill defended certain values. Um, and so although their grandfathers may have been killed, you know, uh, in the process, there's something about, um, something about that in terms of looking toward the future that he thinks uh, that, you know, people will appreciate, right? So, and he says that to Baldwin, he says, I think during the speech, right? He says that your, you know, Baldwin's grandchildren will curse him if if we follow his way. Um, and so, yeah, that that's central to what uh, what Buckley Buckley's arguing. And I think Gary Wills makes this argument, you know, in I think a more sophisticated way. And we don't have to get too far into that. But part of what Wills argues is that, um, and I think this is kind of a, a slightly he takes it in a more, you know, I think a, a more uh, intellectually defensible direction than Buckley. But Wills makes this point is that, you know, he reads Baldwin as rejecting Western civilization as well. And his argument is that that's a mistake because there are resources within Western civilization that came, that are already and can continue to be useful to the, the struggle for liberation. Um, and so I think Buckley, you know, he kind of gets, that's kind of maybe what he's getting at in a clumsy way with that part of the speech. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I read that. Can we, uh, Sarah, do you want to read the uh, passage from Baldwin? And sure. Yeah. So there's a passage I, I pulled uh, a few, well, I should say Tom shared with these with me. And I think they're the best way to get into Baldwin's disposition to the question, which is really different. I mean, I don't think Baldwin in any sense is advocating a race war. I mean, that's the whole reason for bringing or a war against or the camp. Yeah. So Baldwin seems to want something different. Uh, and so I'm going to read from autobiographical notes from Notes of a Native Son and start on page six, if y'all are in the same edition. Uh, so Baldwin says, I know in any case that the most crucial time in my own development came when I was forced to recognize that I was a kind of bastard of the West. When I followed the line of my past, I did not find myself in Europe but in Africa. And this meant that in some subtle way, in a really profound way, I brought to Shakespeare, Bach, Rembrandt, to the stones of Paris, to the cathedral of, oh gosh, help me with my French, Chartres? Chartres. Chartres. Thank you. And the Empire State Building, a special attitude. Uh, these were not really my creations. They did not contain my history. I might search in them in vain forever for any reflection of myself. I was an interloper. This was not my heritage. At the same time, I had no other heritage which I could possibly hope to use. I had certainly been unfitted for the jungle or the tribe. I would have been, I would have to appropriate these white centuries. I would have to make them mine. I would have to accept my special attitude my special place in this scheme. Otherwise, I would have no place in any scheme. So Nick, how does that differ from Buckley's characterization of, of Baldwin's position? Yeah, um, it's, it's such a, you know, every, every time to read a passage of Baldwin, you just sort of like take a moment and just, uh, and just 
savor uh, the the language and and just the um, the profundity of what he has to say. But yeah, so I I read Baldwin and, and Baldwin. I think that that passage in autobiographical notes and um, and I know we might look at Stranger in the Village if we have time as well. You know, Baldwin is 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 reflecting. I think in this really um, nuanced way, in this, in I think a, a really profound way, how somebody like him, um, given his, you know, somebody from a very young age is obsessed with books, right, and obsessed with, really obsessed with uh, this tradition, right, reading everything he can and trying to think about the connection between the connections between his own experience and what he's reading. Uh, um, I think that you see him, you know, reflecting in that in that space. With he he says, I want to come. I would I would like to be able to come to terms with my own history, with the history of uh, of my family. But much of that history has been destroyed, or I'm separated from it in this moment in a way that I, you know, and certainly when he was growing up, he was separated from, um, you know, the, you know, sort of uh, his history in, in a variety of ways by the school system, by what the resources available to his family and so on. And so what he what he's trying to say there is that, you know, he feels like this sense, there's something different, right, about his relationship to the kind of um, the major, uh, you know, sort of uh, markers of civilization, right? And here in that, that passage, right, that you just read, he's identifying, right, in so many different areas, right? Literature, music, uh, architecture, um, religion, all these different things. Um, the, he, he, I like that that phrase he uses. I have to have a special attitude, right? There's this. He, he, and in Stranger in the Village, he says it so powerfully. Says, Even the illiterate white villagers here have a connection to these things, these sort of you know um, artifacts of high culture that they can't really understand in the same way I can. They are connected to them in a sense, in a way that I can never be. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I for for me, I always like to think about you know Baldwin in this regard as, um, you know, part of what he thinks is really important um, in terms of coming to terms with reality as one sense of reality is one, you know, I think he uses the phrase here in the last part of what, what you just read. Um, he says part of what it meant for him to become intellectually mature was to understand, he said, to understand my role which should not be confused with what others called my place, right? I will not accept my place, but I, but I need to understand my role. I need to understand why I have come to occupy the space in your imagination that I've come to occupy. What did you need that created your perception of me? Um, and so I feel like that sort of thing that Baldwin does, and this is the masterful thing that Baldwin does where he goes from the particular to the universal, is that when he's talking about that, when he's trying to understand why is this, you know, this, you know, white person that I'm confronting as a journalist, or as an activist, or just in an ordinary conversation, why are they perceiving me the way they are? What do they need that makes this necessary? I think part of what he wants to do with the tradition, the West, in the kind of this universal sense, is to try to understand, you know, the the kind of um, that on a on a broader scale, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So I kind of, I read Baldwin and I, I get into this a little bit in the book when I'm, you know, doing this thing that's not entirely fair to Buckley where I, I sort of take a Buckley claim and then I, I evaluate it, you know, say, okay, well, let's look at what Baldwin actually said. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think it's worth doing. And one of the things I do is I, I sort of try to draw attention, not only to Baldwin of the early fifties, um, the mid fifties, like the passage you just read, but also a little bit later, 
Um, you know, Baldwin writes this great essay in 64 called Why I, you know, or How I Learned to Stop Hating, or Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare, mm -hmm. um, which is another really powerful piece to read alongside of Stranger in the Village and the autobiographical notes. But yeah, so I'll, I'll stop talking, but that, those are a few thoughts on that. Can I, can I throw one, one more thing in on, on this from Stranger in the Village? Because it's, it's so beautiful the way that he does it. And, and just the arc of the book, it feels like it, there is kind of a story that's being told that one could almost read the book as a kind of a novel. Yeah. Uh, but in, in Stranger in a Village, he, he, he first says, you know, all these, you know, as you say, markers of Western civilization say something to the white villagers, even the illiterate white villagers that they can't say to me because they're all white, right? They, that's their, 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 their people. Um, but then he flips, right, at the very end of the essay. And, this, and, and it's so beautiful, like students miss it. But this is, this is you know, you know you're in the presence of somebody who's a very careful writer. Um, he says, uh, at the very end of the essay, the cathedral chart, I have said, says something to the people of this village, which it cannot say to me. But it's important to understand that this cathedral says something to me, which it cannot say to them. That he brings something, I think not by virtue of his skin color, but by virtue of the cultural construct that is, is blackness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that allows him to see things in these you know great works of the Western tradition or whatever that that other people might miss, and so that there's some there's something positive to add, right? So it's not you can't you it might be that you can't simply either affirm something or simply reject it, but that there's um, a phrase I think you use in your book the critical engagement with the uh, with the tradition seems to be where he ends up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he says at the end of that paragraph that you were just um, citing to him on 128, right? He says, um, but I must accept the status which myth, if nothing else, gives me in the West before I can hope to change the myth. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, then I, this is where, um, you know, in, in the why I stopped um, hating Shakespeare, I mean, two pieces that are really interesting to read, you know, I'm giving all these reading assignments, which politics and the humanities, we should give people stuff to read, right? I mean, reading Ranger exactly. in the Village, why I stopped hating Shakespeare, and also the, the other piece that he wrote in '64 um, was called "The Uses of the Blues," and I, I I love those all together because, in part, I mean, what Baldwin says in "Why I Stopped Hating Shakespeare" is, you know, he sort of starts the essay by saying, at, at some point in my intellectual development, I viewed Shakespeare as one of the architects of my oppression, right? Like he says that I he was an enemy to me. I, I did not want to read him because I thought of him as something that I needed to reject in order to be free. And then he sort of over the course of that essay, much like you're describing here, um, you know, he says that, well, I realize that this can actually, not only do I, I need to read this, I need to understand this, not, not just because I need to, in order to take it apart, um, but because it might be useful to me, right? I might be able to use the resources that Shakespeare um, is, is giving me. And so he says that in part, he says that there's, you know, my quarrel with the English language, this is in why I stopped hating Shakespeare, um, has been that the language reflected none of my experience. But now I began to see the matter in quite another way. If the language was not my own, it might be the fault of the, not, not be the fault, I'm sorry, it might be the fault uh, of the language, but it might also be my fault. Um, and so he then sort of starts to think about ways in which he can read Shakespeare in a new way, right? He can draw on his own experience to say, what is Shakespeare saying? What is he drawing? What is he saying about the universal human experience that I can make my own, right? And so um, he, he says that Shakespeare is providing me, once I understood him in this way, with one of the tools that I could use to survive, right? Um, and he says, I found in his language, the authority of this language was in its candor, its irony, its density, and its beat. This was the authority of the language which produced me 
uh, and it was also the authority of, of Shakespeare. And so he, he kind of, in that piece, in the uses of blues, he says, okay, so I can read Shakespeare and I can find something that helps me make sense of the human experience and how I ought to live. And then I can also listen to Bessie Smith. And it's, it's of course, very different, but I can find something that, you know, that's more directly related to my experience, but I can also, you know, kind of, uh, you know, find a, a different kind of message that will help me make sense of, of how I ought to live. So, I mean, that's the thing about Baldwin is I think of him as we do a lot of either or, you know, in our um, in our political culture and our culture writ large. And I, I think of Baldwin as often a both and and a both and not just in like, hey, let's read everything and, and it's all good. It's like, no, you you read as much as you can. You engage not, you know, as many traditions as you can in a serious way. Um, you engage different forms of expression. Um, so, again, you can have that kind of critical engagement. Uh, and and you might end up outright rejecting what you hear or the message that you hear. But Baldwin is is calling on all of us to sort of uh, see and absorb as much as we can because it might be useful uh, in terms of making sense of, of who we are and, and how we ought to live. So uh, Nick, as somebody who's studied Baldwin's writing and is, it's coming out um, for the very first time in the mid 20th century and sort of you know looked at what's happened to it since, do you think Baldwin is part of the tradition now or does he stand askance to it in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, Baldwin uh, is is absolutely, I mean, you know, and again, this is, this is, yeah, we could have another, we could have a week of conversation about this, right? But, um, you know, I, I, I think of, I mean, I teach Baldwin now, you know, in my intro to political theory class um, as, you know, along with, you know, Plato and, uh, you know, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and all those guys. Uh, and it's, you know, it's interesting to to do that sort of, so just to give that as sort of a, you know, a micro example that might have, you know, broader implications, um, is my students engage with those with those texts and we're, we're going through and, and reading, you know, starting with the Plato's Republic and, you know, kind of ending up with uh, Baldwin. And then we, we usually read some, some bell hooks as well. Um, I mean, it's really interesting to watch how students are, once we get to that point, right, in the fall, in a fall semester where we're, you know, you know, around Thanksgiving and we're getting to Baldwin, um, or you know, and and they've had the experience of engaging these earlier, kind of you know, canonical texts, um, and they're in the they're they're now like sort of uh, able to do the kind of you know we call it ultimate questions, right, asking ultimate questions about politics. Um, they're able to do that kind of thinking. Um, they're, they're, it's, I, I love watching them as they engage uh, something like a letter from a region in my mind. And now they're, they're saying, okay, like I can connect this back. Like Plato, yes, he was doing this in this way and it was so different, but like I can connect what Baldwin is up to, you know, here, as we talked about earlier, like this is somebody who's interested in these questions of self-knowledge, who's interested in what it means uh, to live well um, who's interested in the relationship between our political lives and our, our moral lives. Um, and he's doing it, like he just took me through this tour of what Harlem looked like to him as a teenager, but he's doing, like he is doing that work that we're, that intellectual enterprise that we've been engaged in throughout the semester together. Um, so yes, absolutely. Baldwin is, you know, in any, you know, sort of canon worth its name, uh, Baldwin is there. Um, and I think he's doing, a kind of work that is extraordinarily valuable, just in terms of not only the, the the content, the substance of it, but how he's doing it. Right, he's asking us to imagine the world, you know, through the eyes uh, of of you know folks who are often left out of the story. And I think that's you know kind of one of his central contributions. Um, 
is he's always trying and he's doing this so beautifully in his fiction and his nonfiction to to get us to to imagine the world through the eyes of others um and he's doing that in a way that that sort of you know forces many uh, readers to confront questions that they'd rather not confront and so i think that's one of the things that's so powerful about about his work Nick, I'm afraid that we're out of time. Uh, there's a, like a thousand more questions that we could ask you, but but that's a, actually a fantastic place to end. And maybe I could just um, say um, this: it, that it sounds to me like to, if you if uh, if you're right to do what Buckley wanted to do, which is let's say you know keep Western civilization alive and revitalize it, one would have to do Baldwin rather than Buckley. Is it, would that be a fair? summary of your uh <laughs> right and this is this, yeah i mean so yeah I, I think that um this is the thing right is that you know buckley for all the rhetorical flourishes about the west and about western civilization and about and again his self-conception as a defender of western civilization um i mean as somebody who spent a lot who spent a lot of time with these two guys um, I feel very confident in saying, and I think even Buckley's most ardent defenders would admit this, that Baldwin engaged in a much more serious way with the Western tradition than Buckley ever did. And some of that had to do with Buckley just, you know, overcommitting himself and he couldn't, you know, time to be a really deep thinker with all the other, all the things he was up to. But, but, but yeah, I mean, Baldwin was like, there was a kind of seriousness, and this is ultimately, I should say, Baldwin's indictment of Buckley, right? When he's asked to reflect on Buckley, the line that I think really probably stung the most was he said, Buckley is not a serious man, right? He's not a serious man. And that idea of being serious, uh, being serious about the, the consequences of ideas was very important to Baldwin, right? And so for students, you know, who are listening to this and for those of us who are, you know, lucky enough to be in this, this vocation of, of teaching, Right. There's something about Baldwin that's so inspiring. Right. He is somebody who communicates to us how deeply we ought to care about ideas and the, and the, and the ways in which ideas uh, can, you know, um, change the world. Um, and I don't want to just, you know, totally indict Buckley because I think Buckley was he did care about ideas as well. But I think if Baldwin, you know, in a quiet moment with Buckley, I think well, that's what he wanted to say to him is, Bill, I wish you were more serious and I wish you would listen. Um, and those are the two things he wanted from Buckley that Buckley was unwilling to give him. Um, and I think those are two gifts that we can give each other, right? That, that kind of seriousness uh, about intellectual life and that willingness to listen to each other. Um, so yeah, this has been so much fun. We could, I, I'm happy to do this again anytime. This is, I feel like we could, we could talk all day for sure. Okay, Nick, we, we just have to say thank you. So, um, you know, it's, it's really fantastic. The work that you've done, um, both in the book and and in sort of your public, you know, sort of um, representing like what liberal education is supposed to be. So we want to say thank you for that. Um, and uh, and Whoopi Goldberg, we're we're coming for her. That we're going to move so many copies. <laughs> so, and we're we're just grateful for you to spend this time with us. So, so thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Nick. Thank you, Sarah.